1 John chapter 4. So we are going through the words of Advent this December. Last week we looked at the hope of Christmas, and we discussed that our hope in Christ is different than the hope of the world, right? It's not like a Christmas hope, like a kid hopes he gets something for Christmas. Uh, We have a sure hope because Christ has already paid the price for our sins, amen? He's taken care of our greatest problem, and so therefore our hope is sure, even in the midst of rocky times that we face, we know that ultimately our hope can't be touched because ultimately our hope is in eternity. Our hope is outside of this world. This world is not our home. Aren't you glad for that? (laughs) This is not our final destination. Well, this morning we are going to turn our attention to the love of Christmas. Now, there's a word, uh, much like hope, that has different meanings based on its context, right? Let me introduce you to our newest family member. Uh, This is our golden doodle, Georgia. Yeah, I know. She's cute. I get it. Yeah. (laughs) Georgia is six months old. We've had her for about three of those months. She was a little bit older when we got her. Uh, But she's, she's awesome. I mean, you know, you get puppies and you never, this is the first dog Nikki and I as a couple have ever owned. And so for a puppy, she is amazing. Uh, Very few accidents. She chews up a little bit of stuff, but she's not overly crazy hyper. She's great. And and what do we often say about our pets? I love Georgia, right? Like we say that. Well, let me give you another picture. Uh, These are our five children, and, and we love them to pieces. We tell them all the time, we love them. Let me ask you, is there a difference between love for our children versus love for an animal? Oh, man, I sure hope so. <laughs> man, if you, if you love your dog more than people, let's talk, and we need to pray for you after the service, right? Ultimately, Georgia is just a dog. She's going to come and go. We might shed a few tears, but we're going to forget about her. Our kids, we're never going to forget about her. We love our children, and hopefully there's a different understanding with that. But, but we get that word mixed up all the time, don't we? Yesterday, we had a small group party, and at some, like, so, you know, what do you do for a party when people come to your house? You spend some time cleaning it up. And at one point, Nikki said to me, he's like, there is nothing I love more than a clean house. And then I was just like, what about me? <laughs> of course, we know what she's talking about. I didn't really say that. I understood what she was saying. Like, love is just is a word that has, could have many different meanings. And if you look at it from the world's perspective, like, things just get totally misconstrued. You know, did the Beatles have it right? All you need is love? Like, is, like, is that what it is? Like, what exactly is love? Like, is it, is it something you make? I'll let you think on that for a little bit. Like, what is love? Like, wh- what is it? Is love something that you fall into? And, and then on the, on the flip side, is, something that, is love something that you can then fall out of? Our society has no idea what love is. And, and who says who we can fall in love with? Are there certain people that we can fall in love with? Can anybody love anyone? Are there rules of who you can love? And who is it that decides what love is? Isn't that really the ultimate question? 
who decides what love is? And so in light of that question, let's, let's look at God's word and let that inform us this morning. Follow along with me as I read 1 John 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not, know, not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God, is if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God... God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for the reminder as we sang about how deep your love is for us. How vast beyond all measure that you would give your only son a wretch to make his treasure. Father, what an amazing thing this morning that for those of us who have repented of our sin and placed our faith in you, you have made us into a treasure. Something that was at one time useful for nothing. The only good for us was to throw us out, Lord. You took us in. God, I pray this morning that we would be overwhelmed by your love for us, Lord. That this Christmas season, we would, we would not get caught up in the commercialization of it all, but Lord, we would just be reminded of what the Savior born for us means. God, thank you for your grace, for your mercy. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we begin to move through this text this morning, let's start by answering the question, who is the one who decides what love is? And of course, I think we all understand the answer to that question. And 
It's this. God is the definer of love. God is the one who defines love. And we see this right away in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. We read this in verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And verse 19, as we read earlier, says we love because he first loved us. Here, here's what we walk away from this. God is the ultimate giver of love. And he is the initiator of it. Therefore, he is the definer of love. I wonder how often we look for how God defined love to help us understand it more. We don't get to make love up. We don't get to decide what it means. We don't get to decide who we are supposed to love. We don't get to decide who we're not supposed to love. That's not how truth works, right? Truth is, is firm. It's true. Truth doesn't evolve over time. Truth at one point in history doesn't become untruth in a different point of history. Like God is the one who defines it. He is the one that sets the mark. He is the one that gets to decide what it means. In, in it, and as I was thinking about this, it, it made me think of art. How many, how many of you love going to like art museums? A couple of you. I gotta be honest, guys. Like, I, I am, I am a math guy, and math one plus one always equals one, right? Whenever you get into subjective things, like I lose my mind, and and I am not the guy that you want to go to an art museum with because I'll be done in like five minutes. And, and, and this means no disrespect. Please don't judge me if you are like an artist, okay? But there are times I have seen famous paintings and sculptures where I think, my six-year-old brought this home from school. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's like, this is, like, and, and then you see people who are at these museums. Maybe you're one of them. Again, please, please forgive me for having this attitude. But like, just pondering what the depths of the meaning of this certain artistic thing is. But you know what? Like, it's not up to me to decide what the art means. That's not something. And no matter what you think of it, no matter what people discuss and try to define the meaning of a certain uh, painting or sculpture, the only person who decides the meaning of that is the artist themselves, right? Like they're the ones that determine, here's why I did this, here's why I painted this, here's why I made this, here's the meaning of it. There's no other meaning outside of what the artist intended for it. The, the same is true when it comes to love. God is the artist of what love is. He is the one that defines what it means. We, we don't get to decide what love is. It's already been decided for us because we are not the artist. God is the artist. So we have to ask ourselves then, how exactly does God define what love is? So if you were to think of a, a chapter in the Bible that defines love, what chapter are you going to? 1 Corinthians 13, right? Let's turn, with, turn there. Keep your finger here. Uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. What does God's word have to say about what love is? Perhaps those of you who are married, uh, portions of this were read at that wedding, but let's be honest here, this is not specifically to marriage. This is to all of humanity. 
Like this is how we are, try, we are to do life with one another. This is how we are to respond to those who are not in the family of God. This is how we are to treat others who we disagree with. This is how we are to treat others whom we may even call enemies. This is what love is, 1 Corinthians 13. We're not going to read those first three verses in full, but the, the whole gist of it is, is, is we, could, we could speak in tongues, we could have prophetic powers and have all the knowledge in the world. We could give away all that we have and deliver our bodies to be burned, but the reality is if there's not love in it, it means nothing. Love is very important for us. So what does it mean to love? And we see that in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Aren't you glad of the Lord's love towards us and his patience and his kindness that has not treated us as our sins deserve? This morning, are you, are you aware that God's wrath has been turned away from you if you have repented of your sin and placed your faith in Christ? That his wrath was already turned towards his own perfect son on our behalf? This is the love. This is what love is. It's patient. It's kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist in its own, on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Aren't you, aren't you glad that our Savior is not irritable or resentful? Like how often are, are, are I, I get irritated all the time. Like, do you realize that God just, that this, this is not the way God responds to us when we are doing things stupid? He just doesn't go, roll his eyes at us. Oh, brother, there's Ben again. Like, God is not irritated by us. God is not resentful when we fail to live according to what he's called us to do because he's, he's kind, he's patient, he understands our frame. Like this is, this is what God is and this is how God calls us to love one another as well. Verse 6, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Aren't you glad that God has bore for us, what, what he's bore for us, he bore our sins on the cross. Jesus has, bears all things for his people, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In verse 8, it's in light of God's love for his people, his love never ends. This is what love is. This is the way that the Father has loved us. This is the way that we are called to love one another. Now I want you to be mindful here. Far too often our lack of love for others is out of a lack of love received by others. Isn't, isn't that often true? Like we tend to choose to love those who are more easily lovable than we do those who, are, who wrong us. And we can start playing games and say, well, you don't really deserve my affection. You don't really deserve my love. Imagine if, if I stopped loving my kids because of their lack of love for me. <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't I be a horrible parent? Imagine if that's how parenting worked. We only love our kids as much as they love us in return. How many of you, you would have lost love for your children a long time ago? 
That's how patient God is for us. He doesn't treat us and love us based on anything that we have to offer. But the reality is sometimes we don't love others because of how they have treated us. There is a reason why we are to love one another. What is that reason? Look at verse 19 of 1 John 4 again. 1 John 4, 19 says this. We love because he first loved us. Right there is our motivation. We love because God loves us. And this is our second point here. God's ultimate love is seen in the sacrifice of Christ. Look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is what is so amazing about Christmas. Jesus was a gift given to humanity to be the propitiation for our sins. Say propitiation ten times fast. That is a, an amazing word. So what does it mean exactly? Here's what propitiation means. It means atoning sacrifice. It's an atoning sacrifice. It means, it, it's a means of forgiveness. What propitiation means is that he took our dirty slate and he wiped it clean. That's what Jesus came to us for. That's what the baby manifested in flesh who was fully God came to do, to take our place. You see, this is, this is where, if I'm honest, there, there are times in my life where I'm like, man, I wish I was alive right, as, right before Christ came. Because what were the Jews used to making every year on behalf of their sins? Sacrifices. And what were the stipulations for the sacrifice? It had to be a perfect sacrifice. It had to be without blemish. So you couldn't just go to like your, your flock of sheep and decide, okay, who was the weakest one? Oh, you know what? That one got a cut um, from some animal, like bit part of its leg off. Let's take that one. No, that would not be as accepted. It needed to be a perfect, spotless lamb. This is like the first fruits. Get the best of the best, and you're going to present this as a sacrifice for your sin. But what was true after that sacrifice was given? The, the next year, what did they have to do again? They'd have to give another sacrifice. But when Jesus came, he was the final sacrifice. He was the perfect lamb who would literally wash away the sins of every person who would ever believe. That's the amazing thing of Christmas. When we think about the love of God, he spared no expense for our pardon. He gave his very son for us. So why do we love? We love because Christ first loved us. John 15, 13 says this. Greater love has no one than this 
that someone laid down his life for his friends. To love is to sacrifice. So no, I don't, I don't love my neighbor because he loves me. I love my neighbor because Christ loves me. Our love for others is not based on what we get in return. Our love is based on what we have already received through Christ. Jesus didn't love me for what I could offer. He didn't love me because I was awesome. He loved me while I was still a sinner. And yet he died for me. Now, now we, there's a reality here that aren't we all still sinners? We all still sin, right? Therefore, there's a, there's a sense that we are still sinners. So this is not just speaking of the generic term of we all sin and so therefore we're sinners. This is, this is like your identity is completely in the fact that you are a sinner. That's what he's saying. Our, when our identity was completely based in the fact that we were sinners and that is all we knew, that is when Christ died for us. Not when we were nailing it. He didn't see potential and then decide, I'm going to die for these people because they're actually worthy to be died for. Like, they're, like look at how good they are. There's some really good potential. No, we were, we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. And that is when Jesus came and died for us. That is the love that Christ has for us. And I want you to dwell on something for a second. And my desire here is not for you to find yourself in a place of condemnation and what I'm about to say but my desire is for you to be overwhelmed by the love that Christ has for you imagine you have a friend who says you know there says you're you consider them a friend but like they don't really talk to you a whole lot in fact like you write them letters you give them Christmas cards and birthday cards and just letters for no reason and when you find out they're sick you send them letters and you get like nothing in return in fact, you come to find out that, that oftentimes they're, they're saying they're too busy and they're spending time with, with other people who are actually making life worse for them. Would you consider that person a friend anymore? And yet ponder this. Isn't that sometimes how we treat Christ? We find different things that we'd rather be doing. We find other things that we find more pleasure in than our Savior. And yet... He doesn't cast us into hell. And yet he shows compassion because he's patient. He's kind. He's long-suffering. He understands our frame. He understands that we are flesh and we are sinful. And he's gracious and merciful. This is the love that the Father has for his people. Despite all of that, God remains faithful to us. Why? Because God remains true to his definition of love because that's what he is. He is love. It, it isn't just like one part like, hey, yeah, I'm pretty good at love. Like, no, like, like the defining factor of him, it is love. That is what describes who he is. Therefore, God is patient, God is kind, God is not rude, God is not irritable, God doesn't rejoice in righteousness, but rejoices in the truth. God's love for his people never ends. 
And that is the gift that we received 2,000 years ago. Born in a barn and laid in a manger. Let his love motivate you to love those around you. And this really leads us to our last point. Love is a characteristic of true believers. Love is a characteristic of true believers. And we see this reality all throughout the passage. And really, uh, if, if you read all throughout 1 John, a lot of it has to do with like affirming whether or not you are a believer. It's got different characteristics. Like if these things are true of you, then you're a believer. If they're not, then you're not a believer. And so this specifically in 1 John 4 speaks of the true believer is a person who loves. Just, just look at all these different references to that reality. Verse 7. Let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Someone who knows and loves God loves others. Verse 8. The flip side then. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. What he's saying is like, listen, you can't, you can't claim to be a believer in Christ and then not love because the very reality of who God is is he's love. So how can you say you're a believer in someone who is all about love, but there's no love in your life? It, those things just can't go together. Whoever love has been born of God and knows God, are you patient? Are you kind? Are you someone who is humble towards others? The, the picture of 1 Corinthians 13, does that somehow describe you? Remember, this is not about perfection, right? None of us here is nailing the love. Like, none of us is nailing love in our lives. Like We all have gaping holes, but is there this growth in the way that you love others? Can it be seen in your life that you are growing in your love for one another. But here's the thing. To claim to know God and then to not love, it, it's just impossible. It, it just can't happen. It's impossible to know, the, to know the love of our Savior and what he did for us and then to hate those around us. We can't say that we are something if we don't carry in our lives the very key description of who the one we say we love is. If love is not a part of us, then we can't call ourselves believers. Now imagine this morning, if I came to you and said, hey, I just want you to know something that's true of me. Like I am a professional bodybuilder. What would you say? The first thing you'd probably do is, <laughs> okay. Like, do I look like a bodybuilder to you? What is, what is if, you would, if you could describe a bodybuilder with one word, what would you say? What would you say? Muscle. That's what I think of. Chiseled, is that what I heard? You don't think I'm chiseled? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> muscle, like, right? That describes, like, like bodybuilders are, like, you, I could be, I, I might be in good shape under here. You just don't know, right? Uh, but a bodybuilder you would, my arms would be bulging out of the shirt. This shirt wouldn't fit. I, I would be ripped beyond compare, like, compare, like, you look at bodybuilders, and I'm kind of like, oh, man, I would never want to look like that. See, the reality is, like, 
if a bodybuilder is described by how muscular they are, then you can't claim to be a bodybuilder if you don't have the very thing that describes what a bodybuilder is. The same is true for a believer. We, we can't say, man, I'm a Christian, and then we are hateful to everybody around us. We can't come to church and say, I love Jesus, and then go hating on the people that we work with or the people that we live with in our very houses. Those things do not collaborate. It cannot go together. If we declare to be Jesus, like Jesus, we care to be lovers of Jesus, then we will be described as someone who is loving. John 13, 35, Jesus said this, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, let's be honest here, right? You look at the world, and the world has a different understanding of what it means to love, doesn't it? What love looks like for the world is like, not only should you tolerate what I choose to do with my life, but you should also celebrate it. Is God loving in that way? Or is God's love also seen in the way that he treats sin? If you think God is loving and just approves everything we do, then why did Jesus have to die? If God was a loving God who just, who, and, and that love meant that he would just allow all sin to, to be what it is and you can enjoy yourself and however you think you were made, then why did Jesus have to die on the cross? You see, God's love is also seen in the condemnation of sin. So we've got to be careful that we're not considering whether or not the world loves us because the world may hate us because it hated Jesus and it will hate us. But are we known by the faith community as people of love? Are you known by your family as someone who is loving? Or do you head into this holiday season with people dreading to be around you because you can be so unloving and so unkind and so unlike Christ even though you claim to be that? Do you have love for those around you, and is it seen? Look at verse 11. Beloved, if God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. So what gift do we receive from God upon our salvation? The Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is a down payment saying, I'm going to come back and take you. Does the Holy Spirit just dwell within us, dormant? Is he just kind of like kicking back in the lazy chair, taking a nap? Or is he not going to town on us in the sense of he is conforming us into the image of his son, right? And so if Jesus is love, if that's what defines who Jesus is, then don't you think his Holy Spirit is going to be conforming us into people who are loving? Therefore, if we aren't becoming more and more loving like Christ, then we should question whether or not we have the Holy Spirit. And then if we don't have the Holy Spirit, then Scripture says we are not believers. See, love is a characteristic of true believers because, I mean, think about it. I think I mentioned this last week or recently where, you, you know, the, the, the greedy servant who was forgiven of so much. And then he goes out to find somebody who owed far less than what he owed and demanded it and threw him into prison. Like that man, was, then the, the original guy who was owed the money sent that 
servant back into prison. Like, that's what it is. That's what, when we choose to, like, hold somebody else's sins against them and choose to stay angry at them, what we're saying is, that, oh, oh, you, you have no idea who I am, but I am worthy of God's forgiveness. You, on the other hand, you are not worthy. But do we get to decide that? It's hard, isn't it? It's a hard reality, but it's a true reality. When we are overwhelmed at God's grace and his love for us that has forgiven us, that he was the propitiation for our sins, then it changes the way that we interact with one another. Again, we are not flawless in this, are we? We stumble and fall, and there are, there are unloving moments that we have in our lives, but it is there this growth that we see, the Holy Spirit moving in us, softening in us. Listen, when I, when I, when I was going through this sermon, I was convicted by somebody that I've struggled to love well, and I've put conditions in, in, in a sense saying that I am worthy of God's forgiveness, but you're not worthy of mine, and yet Jesus paid the price for our sins. Scriptures continue in verse 14, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Listen, when, when, when we are living lives of love, we are a testimony to the Son, are we not? We are a testimony that what he has done is true. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. We can't call ourselves believers and then be unloving. It's impossible. Then we see this interesting verse in 18. Look, look what it says there. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So, so what we see here is that when we understand love, it begins to cast out any fear that we have. And here's the, again, the beauty of Christmas. Jesus came humbly. It wasn't how the Jews wanted the Messiah to come. They weren't looking for a baby born in a barn. They were looking for a warrior coming in on a white horse. They were looking for somebody to come and overthrow the Roman government. They weren't looking for this humble child. And yet, that's how Jesus came. To show us that he is concerned for all socioeconomic types of people, whether you're poor or wealthy. Jesus came humbly. Jesus came in love so that we could relate with that. See, they wanted to see him come in power, but Luke 2.12 says this, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Doesn't, doesn't that strike you, though? Like, if you were writing a superhero super movie, is it going to look anything like the Bible? What an amazing thing that Jesus did 
humbling himself. What a loving way to come. And here's what love does. It casts out fear. With Jesus, we have no reason to fear if indeed we have repented of our sin and placed our faith in him. There is no reason for us to wonder what's going to happen 5, 10, 20, 30, 50 years from now. Because ultimately we know where our eternity will lie. Why can we find such great hope and great love in Christ? Because Jesus will never double cross us. He is always true to his character. Now I want you to look with me now to Psalm 103. Because if you're familiar with the Old Testament, then, then we often see fear not always given in a bad light, right? Like if, if you look at First John 4, it's like fear is bad and like, when we understand love, it actually delivers fear from us. It, it, like, it, it casts fear away. But in Psalm 103, it's a little bit different. It's not the same thing. Verse 10 of Psalm 103 says this. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Just, let me just let that ponder. How many, how many of you like love like law shows? Like I'm not talking about like fictional. I'm talking about like real shows where you, you hear of criminals who were, had escaped justice for so long, but then uh, the cops finally catch up with them and, and nail them and, and put them in prison where they belong. How many of you, like, you love those stories? I do. <laughs> I enjoy, a wa- I mean, not enjoy, that's a weird, weird way to say it, but, like, there's a sense of, like, yes, I'm glad they got the bad guy. But here's the reality for us. He does not deal with us. According to our sins. He does not hold our sins against us. He does not repay us according to what we deserve. Verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Wait a minute here. I thought perfect love cast out fear. So why, why would uh, stead, his steadfast love only be, like, be given to those who fear him. Verse 12, another great verse. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Isn't that amazing? We're not defined by our sinfulness anymore. He's taken as far as east is from the west. Like, you can't get further apart because you keep going west and you keep going east. That's how far God removes our sins for us. Amazing. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So, so what is he, if perfect love casts out fear, this, this, is, this is painting fear in a good light, while 1 John 4 is painting fear in a bad light. Well, there's two different ways to look and understand fear. Fear in 1 John 4 is speaking of like fear of punishment. Oh man, I screwed up again. I'm going to get whacked on the head. He's going, to, he's, going to, he's going to send me to hell for sure now for that. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to have something crazy. I'm going to get cancer tomorrow. Like, like that's, that's the fear of 1 John 4, what it's speaking of. And perfect love casts that kind of fear out. The fear that it's speaking of here in Psalm 103 is a fear of reverence. It's a fear, it's a fear of being in awe. It's a fear of honor. It's understanding the power of that lies within God, understanding that he has the power to cast us to hell. But for those who have repented of their sins and placed their faith in Christ, there's no longer any fear of that. 
Do you understand, like, there's a, there's a difference between being, like, like, my parents, I loved my parents, and I never worried about what they thought of me. But there was a certain awe and respect and honor, knowing and understanding what happens when you, when you cross mom and dad. But it, it wasn't a fear for my life. This is, this is what fear of Psalm 103 says. When we understand what God has done for us, we understand there's no longer any reason to fear. I mean, what, what is there to fear? If God has taken care of your greatest problem, your sin, what do we have to fear? What can man, Scripture says, do to me? Take my life. That's fine. Make me suffer. I'll be like Paul. I, the, these momentary afflictions aren't worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory that awaits me. Man, I just can't wait to the day that Jesus comes. And even if tomorrow I get the prognosis from the doctor that I don't want to hear, I know that it can't take away my joy. That's what perfect love does when we understand it. It casts out that fear. I no longer have to worry about my eternity because I was a bonehead this week. Because I see the Spirit conforming me to the image of His Son. No, I am not perfect, but He is growing me up. He is maturing me. So with that, believer... We have no reason to fear because Jesus was born 2,000 years ago. Those who have repented of their sin and placed their faith in Christ have nothing to fear. But there is a seriousness here, isn't there? Because if you haven't repented of your sin and placed your faith in Christ, then there is reason for you to fear. God, cre God created us for his glory. And the problem is we were all born in sin that has separated us from him. And therefore, nothing we can do can make us right with God. Only by the blood of Christ, through our faith in him and our repentance of our sin, can we be made right. Brothers and sisters, if you are struggling with that this morning, if you are wrestling through that, let me encourage you, please don't leave before you take the time to talk to someone. I'd love to spend time with you if that's what it takes. Scripture says for those who do not repent of their sin, who do not place their faith in Christ, then there's a lake of fire that awaits you. My desire would be for you to taste and see that the Lord is good. Perfect love casts out fear. Look at John 20, 21. We see the reality of when we don't love, what it means for us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he, he does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Brothers and sisters, God has rescued you from your sin. You have no reason to fear. May you be overwhelmed this season as you ponder the love of Christ who has been abundantly patient and kind to you, who has been long-suffering. May we not allow the commercialism of Christmas to keep us 
from remembering that great love that he has for us. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. I thank you that you have rescued us. Lord, I pray for anybody here who, if there be any reason for them to question whether or not they are right with you, Lord, would you, would you move in their hearts, Lord, to talk to someone about these things? And Lord, I pray for the believers in this room. I pray that, Lord, this would be just another reminder this morning of how much you love us. That you would take the wrath that should have been placed on us and you put it on your son. Oh Lord, may that lead us to worship. Lord, may that never grow familiar with our hearts. Lord, I know there will be seasons where it will. There will be seasons where we are dry. There will be seasons where that doesn't affect us, Lord. But would you just continually remind us? Would you continue to draw us back to you? Lord, I do pray for those right now who find themselves in a dry season. Lord, I pray that, that you would remind them of your sacrificial love that you have for them. A love that's even patient with them now as they struggle, Lord. That, Father, we would be a people who understands that a struggle doesn't mean that you've left us, Lord. It just, it just may be a reminder of how much we need you, Lord. Thank you that you are so gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You are so good. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me invite